Hi, and welcome to the Sinking Faith Q&A session. I'm Abby, this is Max, and today we're talking about faith and climate change. So climate change seems to be one of those um, big issues that just remains on the table of global conversation, despite everything else that's going on in the world at the moment. Why is that? What is it about climate change that's so important? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Abby, and it, it does seem to constantly be at the forefront of the big issues of the day. And also, it seems to be one of those issues that really does tend to generate and evoke emotion in the debate and in the discourse more so than others. And I think a big part of that is because it is existential in a sense. It, affect, it has the potential to affect everyone. It's already affecting many people. And I think a lot of people correctly feel both a moral and a public policy related responsibility to have humankind as a whole and each of us as individuals and as communities act on this issue. Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the former US president, he famously said that a nation is doing well when it treats its natural resources as assets to be handed over to the next generation, increased, not impaired in its value. And all of the science and all of the common sense observation out there shows that for whatever reasons, and we can argue about why and to what degree, but for whatever reasons, that is not happening right now. We are not collectively stewarding our natural resources well, either individually as nations or globally as a global community. And so that's why it remains important and so it should be. And how can, um, how can people of faith kind of respond to this? What does faith have to do with climate change? Yeah, well, it goes, I mean, it goes right back thousands of years before Teddy Roosevelt um, talked about stewarding natural resources. Right at the beginning of the Bible, the very first book of Gen in Genesis, where God literally gives humankind the responsibility to steward the natural environment. And so there's this language that is used that, yes, has words like dominion in it, but the task that is given is one of stewardship. And stewardship includes at least two things, utility and care. Like, yes, we are called to utilize the natural resources of the planet, but and for better quality of living, to alleviate suffering, to serve one another, to raise families, to build communities, and that's all correct. But it also includes stewardship and care. And so it's that element of care that I think is a really deeply biblical principle that's really, really grounded in the Judeo-Christian moral ethic. And so anyone of faith, um, of any type of faith for that matter, but particularly from the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, has this kind of scriptural mandate that God gives us the environment to take care of and to steward responsibly. And that's where I think action on climate change and an honest and open discussion on climate change and what we can reasonably do about it mm. is a, a very, very biblical thing for people of faith. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we're seeing kind of lots of world leaders, the UN, there was that World Economic Forum meeting a couple of weeks ago where mm. people are coming together to kind of address climate change. And I think one of the things people are saying is um, to really kind of find our way out of this dilemma is to um, transform our economies, transform our societies, um, just to kind of make everything more inclusive and fair, more connected to nature. What do you see are the challenges in this and how can we, um, as people of faith, respond to that? Yeah, this starts to touch on a really important part of the debate, I think, because when any leader or anyone of influence uses a word like transform, that ordinarily is going to really upset around half of the people in the room, and it's going to really inspire and ignite the other half of the people in the room. And we can argue about the proportions, but I think part of the challenge is that a lot of people who are living well, living comfortably, have the resources they need, they don't want the world transformed. They don't want their lives transformed. They don't want society transformed. And 
for the rest of us who believe that action on this issue is really important, we need to start by empathizing with that, with the reality that even the language we use, even, even language like crisis and emergency, um, even though in my view they may well be warranted as words to use, that's not helping with people who don't want to be told what to do, who won't want, don't want to be judged or don't want it to feel like we're suddenly going to pull the rug out from under their way of life. I think there's a more nuanced way to do it. At the same time, the other set of people in the world, people perhaps like myself who believe that there does need to be more systemic structural action and we do need to transform things, um, we also need to be understood in the context of the science and people who may, may disagree need to also come and meet us halfway as well. So. I think as people of faith, what's really important is that we can have faith in a, a sovereign God who's in control of everything, but also kind of take responsibility and take agency. But the most important part in that, as I've kind of outlined, is that we empathize with those that disagree with us on this issue. And that's what I think has been lacking on this issue of climate change for about 30 years now. A lack of empathy from either side for the other side. Yeah, and I think, I think you're, so, you're so right. It can be such a divisive issue. And, you know, it was only a few days ago that we saw someone smear the Mona Lisa with, with cake as a kind of a protest about what's going on with climate change at the moment. Um, and there seems to be all these differing opinions economically and politically. Um, how can we kind of overcome some of this aggression and discord that we're seeing? Yeah, there's a, a lot of research that's been done um, in dysfunctional marriages and failed marriages, actually. And it's not the only marker, but one of the key markers in whether or not a marriage is in real trouble or a marriage is falling apart, it's one of the big causative indicators before a marriage falls apart, is the presence or evidence of contempt. Mm. And contempt is when you literally are looking down at the other person in a moral sense. You're thinking of them as a lesser person than you. And that, for me, has been the biggest problem with the climate wars. The cl climate change has not been dealt with because the climate wars have not been navigated responsibly. And because of that, we've just created collectively much more heat than light on this issue. When this is debated, we, we don't come up with solutions. We just create more and more heat. And it starts with, as I mentioned earlier, the need for all of us to not be contemptuous of people that disagree with us, not look down on them as lesser people, learn to disagree without being disagreeable, and to remember that all of the emotion and vitriol on this issue needs to be about the issue, not the people. Whereas I think if you honestly spoke to a lot of people that hold very strong views on both sides of the aisle on this issue, they're more, they're, their feelings are much more contemptuous of the people on the other side of the debate mm -hmm. than the actual issues being debated in the yeah. first place. So we need to stop being angry with people and we need to start being more emotionally invested with solving the problem, with mm -hmm. solving the issue at hand. And I, I think the most important way to start with that is to remember that we all come to this as equals. There is human dignity. People are entitled to different opinions. People are even entitled to you know, different understandings and interpretations of the science and the data. I don't think we even need to just take the science that I widely accept and shove it down people's throats. Fossil fuel emissions, carbon emissions are demonstrably not a healthy thing for humankind, regardless of what you think about collective atmospheric science. It's not good. Like carbon's not something we want to be breathing in. Fossil fuel emissions are not good things. So it's actually just good economics, good morality and good policy for us to find ways to clean up the way we generate energy and electricity. Energy, self-sufficiency, energy security. These are good things 
biblically and morally for all of us to do. So I think we can meet in the middle, but the first and most important step is we have to leave contempt behind, especially contempt of other people. We need to get alongside one another and look at the issue kind of devoid of emotional responses to each other and emotionally and intellectually respond to the issue itself. Um, just pivoting slightly towards this kind of theme of justice and climate change. So mm. I think, you know, climate change seems to disproportionately affect the world's most vulnerable people. And, you know, there's this real need for a justice-orientated worldview. Right. And, you know, obviously the Christian message has loads of stuff to say about this. Um, yeah, how do you think that um, our faith can help us respond? Yeah, this is on an important point. This is why I think it's very difficult to call yourself a Christian and not be concerned about this issue as a serious issue because of the disproportionate way, as you've correctly said, that it impacts on the disadvantaged, on, you know, people of low resources, people in underdeveloped countries and communities. Um, so there's clearly a mandate, I think. There's a very clear biblical mandate for Christians to reach out to the foreigner, the oppressed, the disadvantaged, those suffering from economic, social, cultural inequality, whatever it might be. And climate change is one of those issues that you know, really provides a pathway and a channel through which we need to reach out to these people perhaps the most. So I don't think you can be a Christian and, and deny that. The problem often happens when people like myself and those of like minds, perhaps that see the need for action on this issue, we are kicking and screaming, as I've mentioned earlier, from a more of a bitter place, even if we're doing it from a scriptural base, from a place of bitterness and anger that something hasn't been done. And the defacing of the Mona Lisa, I think is actually a pretty good example of that. Yeah. Um, I know he's, he was trying to raise awareness about the issue, but he's clearly coming from a place of bitterness and anger. Um, in the book of Amos, Amos chapter five, the prophet, God says through the prophet something very interesting. He says, you have thrown righteousness to the ground and so your calls for justice have turned to bitterness. And that's important, I think, because there are no sh there's no shortage of people calling for justice today, whether it's economic justice, racial justice, or in this, on this issue, climate justice. The problem is they're doing it with a kind of an angry heart and a contemptuous heart of those who disagree with them. What God says is when you throw righteousness to the ground, that's when your calls for justice turn bitter. I want you to call for justice from a good place, from a place of love and wanting to see resources restored and human dignity upheld and human equality sustained. That's the kind of justice that God is looking for. And later in that same book and in many other books in the Bible, we see justice going along, alongside another word, not anger, not emotion, not vitriol, not even activism. Justice comes alongside righteousness. Mm. And in the Bible, righteousness means two very simple things, being in right relationship with God and being in right relationship with other people. And so I think once we get those things right, then our calls for justice come from a much more loving place. The contempt will leave. It's more about restoration and repairing and building up rather than smearing paintings and trying yeah. to kick and scream and, yeah. and be angry about things. So mm. it's not that a lot of this activism is calling for the wrong things, but I think perhaps it might be calling for it in the wrong way. Yeah. Um, and that's where other people might shut down. Yeah. And that's when the heat gets created rather than the light. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so what does this look like in our day-to-day -day lives? You know, some of our listeners might be tuning in thinking, you know, they're not kind of affected by the effects of climate change every day. Right. Um, they could almost feel a bit detached. And, you know, there's almost this sense of futility as well in this, mm. uh, such a problem of such a big scale. Um, how should we be responding when an issue isn't maybe directing us 
um, personally, but the Bible is actually calling us still to be quite outward facing. Yeah, this is really important because this is what really lands the issue in our laps or, or fails to land it in our laps. Um, there's this phenomenon by the, the, the behavioural scientists and psychologists called availability bias. And it's basically when people say, well, I don't feel the rain, so it's not raining. Whereas, you know, it could be raining somewhere else in your town. It could even be raining down the street. Um, or someone says, I don't think racism exists because they've never experienced racism. Yeah. So simply to say, oh, I don't think climate change is real because it's not affecting me is a bit of a category error. It's an availability bias thing. When you look at what the governments and the people of many, many low-lying island nations like Fiji and Tonga and Tahiti and Vanuatu, countries that are lying at sea level or below sea level, they have been stressed and scared and upset about climate change for generations mm -hmm. now. While the rest of us living comfortably in our OECD, advanced industrial countries, yeah. are saying, many of us, it's either not an issue or it's not worth thinking about or it's not really as urgent as everyone's making it out to be. So for some people it is real and what that means is we need to listen to them. In the same way we empathise with you know, an abuse victim or someone that calls you know, 000 or 911 or makes an emergency call out, the first and most important thing is not to ignore the call. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, overcoming that availability bias I think is key. In terms of our everyday life, because this is a very, very worthy concern I think, people are like, well, what can I do? And even countries' political debates domestically are often, well, even if our country does the right thing, there are all these countries that are not doing the right thing. Or even if my family does the right thing, the family down the street is not doing the right thing. And this is where I think the, the Christian moral framework is helpful because it talks about personal responsibility and personal agency. So, yes, you and I and our families, we are incapable of changing you know, the trajectory of climate change yeah. on our own. Yeah. And so... That is, that's correct, we can, we can accept that. But if everyone took that view, then there's no hope at all. Mm. And so the way I think we should think about it and the way biblical agency works is on any given issue, on any given thing, we have an element of responsibility. And if you divide up the 7.5 billion people in the world on climate change, maybe yours and my responsibility is 0. 0.000000 something something 1% mm. of, of the, the climate change issue, of you know, understanding it, acting on it, and changing it. We don't have to worry about the other 99.999 recurring percent, but we do need to take 100% responsibility for our 0.000001%. Yeah. Each person has resources, each person has things they can do, each person can vote in certain ways, each person can speak and contribute to the public discourse with a certain level of you know, humility and civility. So we can all do what we can do with what we've got. And that according to the Christian moral framework, is all we are ever asked to do. We're just called to do the very best that we can do with what we've got. We're not called to change the world. We're not called, called, called to change the trajectory of the rising climate or anything like that. Just to do what we can with what we've got. To take 100% responsibility for whatever our tiny little yeah. you know, responsibility is.